Chapter 17 The Unit Cost of Steak It was a late August evening, and the setting summer sun cast long shadows across the winding, tree lined streets in the small English town of Fleet. Barely a month earlier, Hayes had moved there with his family. They had given up on trying to sell the old rectory. Buyers were scarce, at least at the price Hayes and Ty were seeking, and so they had settled for renting it out instead. With that desperately needed income, they moved into a four bedroom rental house with a small backyard. The house was a short drive from Ty's parents, so they had easy access to childcare when Sarah was at work and Hayes had to meet with his lawyers or appear in court. Hayes also informed their befuddled real estate agent that a key consideration was the house's proximity to a KFC outlet. Driving home, fried chicken and a Fanta resting on the passenger seat of his remaining Mercedes, Hayes approached a four way intersection and tapped the brakes. His orange soda teetered, and as he leaned over to prevent it from tumbling to the floor, he took his eyes off the road. The car rolled through a red light. There was a squeal of brakes, then the smash of metal and glass as Hayes' vehicle collided with another car. Hayes was shaken up, but not seriously injured, nor was the other driver. The Mercedes didn't fare so well. Its repair bill would amount to about 15,000 pounds. Hayes had been struggling lately to remain focused on the task at hand, as unpleasant as it might be, to not let his mind wander to subjects he preferred, like financial markets or QPR's next match or his rapidly cooling dinner. Sometimes, though, when his stress levels rose, the world seemed either to descend into slow motion or to accelerate as if life was being fast forwarded. It was hard to concentrate at times like that. Now, a brief lapse in attention had nearly ended in disaster. He phoned Ty from the site of the accident. I crashed the car, he reported. She was relieved to hear nobody was hurt, but she couldn't shake an unsettling thought. Was it really an accident? On September 25th, 2013, The Justice Department filed felony charges against Goodman, Wilkinson, and Reed. Aside from Hayes and Darren, the three former brokers were the first people the U.S. government had charged in its five year investigation, and a posse of powerful American prosecutors once again took to a podium to denounce their actions. Attorney General Holder accused the men of having undermined the integrity of the global markets. They were supposed to be honest brokers, but instead, they put their own financial interests ahead of that larger responsibility. And as a result, transactions and financial products around the world were compromised because they were tied to a rate that was distorted due to the broker's dishonesty. The charges were filed in a New York court on the same day that ICAP agreed to pay $87 million to settle the U.S. and British LIBOR investigations. The deal spared ICAP's top executives of criticism, notwithstanding David Casterton's role hammering out the fixed fee arrangement that authorities now described as corrupt. I deeply regret and strongly condemn the inexcusable actions of the brokers. Michael Spencer told reporters, emphasizing that the misbehavior had been confined to a few rogue and former employees. In the United Kingdom, labor lawmakers called for David Cameron's Conservative Party to return the nearly five million pounds that Spencer had donated. The party kept the money. Like Hayes, the former ICAP brokers now had a powerful incentive. To find a way to get the British government to charge them, to reduce the risk of U.S. extradition. And so lawyers for the three men paraded into the SFO's offices to plead with the anti fraud agency to prosecute their clients. The SFO remained in the dark about Hayes' intention to fight the charges. Hayes, out of money, had decided to take advantage of Britain's public defender system. And Fulcrum wasn't eligible to participate in the program. Footnote 
Unlike in the United States, where defendants unable to afford their own lawyer are assigned a public defender, in Britain they get to pick a private lawyer who then gets reimbursed through the legal aid program. End footnote. In any case, his impression was that the small firm wasn't equipped for a major, long running criminal trial. He set out to find someone to represent him in his still secret fight against the SFO. Fat, bearded, and with a mane of long black hair, George Carter Stevenson was famous for defending suspects in gruesome, headline grabbing murder cases. Hayes was drawn to him for several reasons, among them the fact that Carter Stevenson was willing to accept somewhat less than his usual fee to take his case. A sign, Hayes concluded, that the lawyer was confident of victory and the justness of his cause. Ty, at least, recognized that it was also conceivable that Carter Stevenson was eager for the publicity associated with another marquee trial. Hayes's new legal team told the SFO on October 9th that he would plead not guilty and wouldn't testify as a prosecution witness. Suddenly, the backbone of the agency's biggest investigation had turned to mush. The SFO got to work fulfilling Johnson's prediction from months earlier that the agency would crush Hayes if he fought the charges. For starters, it got a court to slap a restraining order on him, limiting his weekly spending to 250 pounds, less than $400, on the grounds that anything he was spending more than that especially now that he wasn't paying his own legal fees, could represent an effort to hide or dispose of ill-gotten assets. Then, one October afternoon, SFO officials arrived in the lobby of Shearman and Sterling's offices. A receptionist called Ty to let her know there were government agents downstairs looking for her. She came down to the lobby and was handed a court order that froze her and Joshua's assets and accused her of trying to hide her husband's criminal proceeds by transferring the old rectory ownership to her name. Ty was mortified. The agent's presence at her work meant she had to explain the embarrassing situation to her boss. As soon as he heard what had happened, Hayes flew into a rage. He regarded the pursuit of his wife and two-year-old son as underhanded, and felt that he was being treated like a drug dealer or a terrorist. In fact, the effort to go after the family's assets was a routine law enforcement tactic. It shouldn't have surprised him that the SFO, spurned by its star witness, was now fighting back. But the restraining order was based on a false premise that Ty was hiding assets under her maiden name. In fact, she had always used the name Ty in professional contexts, and her passport, driver's license, and other official documents were under that name too. Yes, ownership of the house had been transferred to her, but it wasn't a secret. All the records were public. The judge who signed the asset freezing order held a new hearing and scolded the SFO for misleading the court. But still, damage had been done. The agency's next move was to tweak the wording of its charges against Hayes. No longer would he be tried for manipulating LIBOR and other interbank-offered rates. Now it would just be LIBOR. The change meant that the British charges didn't fully overlap with the American ones. As a result, Hayes theoretically could be extradited to the United States to face charges of rigging other non-LIBOR benchmarks. The next month, the SFO sent Hayes and his lawyers into a panic when it mentioned in court papers that on top of the collusion and fraud charges that had been public for the past year, the United States also was accusing him of obstruction of justice. That seemed plausible, given what Hayes and his lawyers now knew about his recorded 2011 call with Alikulov. But the SFO eventually acknowledged that it had made a mistake. Hayes saw dirty tricks where in fact there probably was just incompetence, but again, the punch had landed. For the past couple of years, Tullet Prebon had had its head buried deep in the sand. The firm's longtime CEO, Terry Smith, 
the son of a truck driver, was convinced that his brokerage had sidestepped the LIBOR scandal. And he and his deputies basked in schadenfreude as they watched their hated rivals ICAP and R.P. Martin wriggle in the regulatory crosshairs. But in March 2013, after spending dozens of hours interviewing Hayes, the SFO had decided that Tullet and its brokers might be implicated as well. The agency sent a request to the brokerage for information. Trying to assess the possible damage, the firm set out to interview every employee who had interacted with the now radioactive Haze. One of those was the Hong Kong broker Danny Brand, who had bought Haze the yellow bumblebee socks and had told him he'd been kidnapped when he wasn't at work on time. Brand had been a guest at Hayes's wedding. Now, sitting across the table from a lawyer and compliance official in Tullet's offices, the broker described Hayes as psychotic and an irrational guy at the best of times. Brand said he had never fielded a request to move LIBOR or participated in a switch trade, but he defended any of his colleagues who had done so by noting that if brokers didn't comply with Hayes's wishes, however unreasonable they might have been, they would have faced serious professional consequences. Hayes hadn't sought Brand's help with LIBOR because the broker was based in Hong Kong and therefore lacked the connections with London-based LIBOR setters enjoyed by other plugged-in brokers, brokers like Noel Cryan. As Tullet plowed through its archive of emails and instant messages, Cryan now found himself in an undesirable spotlight. The firm suspended him and then hauled him in for a disciplinary hearing on September 11th. Five company officials and outside lawyers crowded into a meeting room. It was the first time Cryan had ever met the head of the brokerage's compliance department. Cryan argued that he hadn't actually assisted Hayes. He was only creating the illusion of being helpful in order to preserve the lucrative account and to trick Hayes into participating in the switch trades with Danziger. What's more, he said Tullet's upper management, including Angus Wink, knew exactly what was going on with the controversial switches. A couple of weeks later, Cryan was summoned for another meeting and was handed a three-page letter. Tullet accepted his argument that he hadn't tried to manipulate LIBOR, but not his claim that senior management knew about the switch trades. It was a convenient interpretation. Tullet bought the portions of Cryan's defense that made it look like Tullet hadn't done anything wrong, but not those that cast aspersions on top executives. Wink had denied that he knew anything about the switch trades. The decision is to terminate your employment with a company with immediate effect for gross misconduct the letter concluded. In October, Tullet belatedly informed the SFO that it had found recordings that captured Cryan and his colleagues talking with their bosses about the switch trades, just as Cryan had claimed. The firm didn't mention the recordings to Cryan. Tullet had lanced the boil. The authorities behind the LIBOR investigation started to cash in on the case's growing cachet. Gary Gensler rewrote history and credited himself with initiating the CFTC's LIBOR investigation, telling a New York Times columnist in November 2013 that the whole thing started after he read a news story about LIBOR. I asked our head of enforcement, should we look into this? Gensler claimed, ignoring the fact that the LIBOR investigation was roughly a year old by the time he joined the CFTC. Margaret Cole the FSA enforcer, who had seemed lukewarm about the LIBOR investigation, jumped to the financial services firm PricewaterhouseCoopers. Her boss, the FSA's chief executive, leapt to a top job at Barclays, helping the British bank improve its interactions with regulators, and was later knighted. In the United States, Stephen Obey secured himself a fat payday at the law firm Jones Day, where his practice involved helping financial institutions navigate the CFTC's rocky regulatory terrain. David Meister, having apparently sated his desire to leave a mark somewhere, returned to Skadden Arps, 
for his LIBOR-enhanced credentials added to his resume and presumably his paycheck. The same trend took hold among the Justice Department's LIBOR-busting crew. Robertson Park jumped to the private law firm Murphy & McGonagall, which touted his experiencing bridging the Justice Department-CFTC divide. William Stelmach joined the firm of Wilkie, Farr & Gallagher, where he helped financial institutions get off the hook in government investigations. And Scott Hammond, who as a top antitrust enforcer had put UBS's law firm, Gibson Dunn, in the driver's seat of the LIBOR investigation, landed a job in Washington as a partner at Gibson Dunn. There, he was reunited with his former boss, Gary Spratling. The law firm issued a press release quoting Spratling, The addition of Hammond will ensure that Gibson Dunn will continue to be the go-to firm for cartel defense work. Hammond himself was open about the fact that he'd be helping clients deal with antitrust investigations, in other words, outmaneuvering his former government colleagues. The phenomenon of government officials scoring lucrative jobs at the companies they previously policed was so well established that it had a name, the revolving door. And if everyone was doing it, why shouldn't these guys? Didn't they deserve to enjoy some of the same largesse from putting their unique skills to work? There were no rules prohibiting switching sides, and no matter which direction they looked, they were surrounded by men and women who had enriched themselves by exploiting inefficiencies and loopholes that would be imperceptible to all but the professionally trained eye. So what if their skills were now being used to help powerful institutions avoid the same laws and regulations that they previously had been entrusted to enforce. On a cool, gray December day, almost exactly a year after Hayes had been arrested, he walked into the Suffolk Crown Court. The bleak brick building on the banks of the Thames had been the venue, years earlier, of the trial of his former Nottingham classmate, Kweku Aduboli. Hayes wore a dark blue shirt and a pair of old black Armani slacks, along with his bumblebee socks, which he now believed brought him good luck. Standing in the dock with Farr and Gilmore, he was asked how he wished to plead. Not guilty, he replied. Farr and Gilmore also pleaded not guilty. Announcing the plea in court, the culmination of months of personal struggle, felt good. Hayes' spirits immediately improved. Suddenly, the world didn't look like such a hostile place. One afternoon, a few days later, he and Ty were at home watching the World Darts Championship on television. During a break in the action, the camera panned to the audience. It was filled with rowdy, drunk fans, many of them costumed as clowns or rabbits or Star Wars stormtroopers. Ladbrokes, a British gambling company that was sponsoring the tournament, had handed out blank signs for people to write on and hold up for the cameras. In black marker, someone had scrawled, Save the ICAP 3, a reference to Reed, Goodman, and Wilkinson. Hayes hit the rewind button on his remote to make sure he hadn't imagined it. Sure enough, there it was. He drew solace. To allow Hayes to prepare his defense, the SFO handed over to his team tens of thousands of electronic files, emails, chat transcripts, phone calls, interview recordings, trading records, computer screenshots, photos, scanned printouts that the agency had collected in its investigation. There were scores of gigabytes of data that needed to be read and cataloged. Hayes attacked the new project with the same gusto that he had brought to his job as a trader. He set up shop at his kitchen table and stacked towers of evidence on chairs and alongside salt and pepper shakers and Joshua's placemat. It was solitary work. He sometimes went all day without any human contact. He worked at all hours, not always because he wanted to, but because it beat lying in bed awake, unable to sleep. Hayes used computer programming skills that he learned as a trader to build a vast interactive database 
in which he kept track of all the exhibits. The database allowed his lawyers to sort the materials by dozens of variables, including the seniority of executives involved in each communication. When that task was complete, he moved on to other information sources. He read through Canadian affidavits. He had German court documents about the firing and subsequent reinstatement of several Deutsche Bank employees responsible for submitting LIBOR data translated into English. He repeatedly instructed his lawyers to submit freedom of information requests. A condition of his bail was that he had to stay in England or Wales, so the family took a quick vacation to the Isle of Wight, off England's southern coast. Hayes's father footed the bill. Hayes spent the holiday trying to track down Thomas Yule and Conan Snyder's paper, which, in the absence of any journals willing to print it, the grad students had self-published online, indicating that Citigroup appeared to be skewing its LIBOR submissions. Once Hayes had sifted through all the available evidence, he started the exhaustive task of figuring out how often Goodman's run-throughs actually were beneficial to his trading positions. The answer, unsurprisingly, considering that Reed had routinely lied to Hayes, was not all that often. Next, Hayes set out to identify who might have been harmed by his manipulative activity. One way to assess this, he figured, was to identify who was on the other side of his trades. By definition, every trade had a winner and a loser, and if Hayes was the beneficiary, who were the victims? This was a Herculean task, in part because he had been such a prolific trader. The SFO had provided him with his trading records. There were 45,407 transactions from 2006 through 2010. He went through each one. Of those, about two-thirds, 31,002, involved instruments that were linked to LIBOR and were relevant to the case. Almost all of those... 99.9% were with other banks. The other 43 were with hedge funds and other asset managers. There were no other trading partners, no pension funds or university endowments or municipalities or mom-and-pop investors. In other words, all his trades were with sophisticated institutions. He wasn't deliberately ripping off innocents. Here was a vivid illustration of the closed-loop system that had come to characterize the 21st-century financial industry. Banks and other financial institutions trading with each other and nobody else in a self-perpetuating, self-serving cycle. Of course, that didn't justify Hayes' actions, legally or otherwise. And it conveniently didn't account for those relying on slightly skewed LIBOR data basically anyone with a mortgage or loan or hedging instrument whose value was based on the benchmark. It wasn't Hayes's fault alone that states, counties, towns all over the United States, many of them, like Baltimore, slashing school and police budgets to keep afloat amid the recession, had potentially lost millions due to aberrations in LIBOR. It wasn't Hayes's fault alone that pension funds safeguarding the retirement savings of thousands of cops, firefighters, and teachers might have been stiffed. And it wasn't Hayes' fault alone that other financial institutions, as unsympathetic as they might be, they still managed the investments of millions of individuals and institutions, had ended up on the wrong side of LIBOR-linked transactions. But Hayes did bear some responsibility— and yet those victims didn't factor into his calculus. The list of individuals charged by the U.S. and British governments whose crimes related to LIBOR manipulation continued to grow. In January 2014, the Justice Department filed charges against Paul Robson, a.k.a. Pooks, along with two of his former Robobank colleagues. Most of the allegations were unrelated to Hayes. Robson eventually pleaded guilty, becoming the first person to admit to criminality. Two months later, the SFO charged Reed, Wilkinson, and Goodman. It was, perversely, a happy day for the former brokers 
because it reduced the chances of extradition to the United States. All three pleaded not guilty. In October, the SFO charged Noel Cryan, the seventh man in Hayes' alleged ring. Footnote. The SFO also filed charges against seven former Barclays employees for their alleged roles in the LIBOR scandal, although they were unconnected to Hayes. End footnote. Each time charges were filed, a press conference was convened or a press release issued touting the latest actions as a clear sign of the government's commitment to punishing financial criminals. For the most part, the media played along, and to a certain extent, these creatures of the modern financial system were fair game. They had pushed the envelope too far. They had gotten rich doing so. They had abandoned their moral and ethical compasses. Perhaps they had even broken the law doing so. And yet even the most vigorous prosecutor would have to admit that these guys had nothing at all to do with the larger financial crisis. They weren't issuing reckless mortgages. They weren't packing those mortgages into toxic securities. They weren't piling on the billions of dollars in borrowed money that would topple some of the world's biggest banks. Meanwhile, the bank executives who had done all those things were sitting pretty. Sure, some of them had lost their jobs, but many had walked away with fortunes worth well into the tens of millions of dollars. In May 2014, Andrew Thursfield and his Citigroup-appointed lawyer showed up at the SFO's offices for two days of interviews. With Hayes no longer a prosecution witness, Thursfield was going to help fill the void, and the SFO wanted to get a feel for its star witness before he appeared in court. The culture at City at the time was far from being dishonest, he assured Matt Ball. Aside from Hayes, everyone else that I dealt with, and definitely everyone in the LIBOR process, was totally honest and doing everything to the best of their ability in what were often difficult conditions. Hayes, he said, was definitely a bad apple. But when presented with email after email that seemed to show Thursfield himself taking LIBOR-moving instructions from traders in the period before Hayes had arrived at Citigroup, he rattled off excuses. I have chosen my words poorly here, he said to explain one statement. This email reflects a poor choice of words on my part, he conceded in relation to another note. This was a flippant remark of mine, he said about yet another email where he suggested getting Barclays to lower its rates. When shown other emails where Citigroup colleagues explained their plans to manipulate LIBOR, Thursfield insisted he didn't know what they were talking about. The judge assigned to Hayes' case was a former semi-professional rugby player named Jeremy Cook. He was a long-time trial lawyer, bespectacled and with bushy eyebrows and brown hair, punctuated by white sideburns. He had joined the bench in 2001, the same year he was knighted. A member of a socially conservative Christian lawyers group, he had ruffled feathers in the past by sentencing a woman to eight years in prison for performing her own late-term abortion. After months of reviewing evidence and mediating lawyers' pretrial jousting, Cook was pretty sure Hayes was guilty. Most of the defense's maneuvers to get the case dismissed or delayed or redefined struck him as a waste of time. The trial already had been pushed back to spring 2015, and Cook was determined to get it wrapped up before the court shut down for that year's August recess. Carter Stevenson tried to get the case tossed on an important technicality. Only in the wake of the Barclays settlement had Parliament passed a law officially outlawing the manipulation of benchmarks like LIBOR, and that didn't apply retroactively. Plus, the conspiracy to defraud charges against Hayes hinged on the notion that he had intended to defraud third parties. Well, who exactly were those third parties? And how were they actually defrauded? The SFO hadn't presented evidence that identified victims. Hayes's lawyers also decided to seek Cook's recusal, 
citing comments he'd made in court about the case being opened and shut and his repeated references to Hayes as a gambler. But in one motion after another, the judge ruled for the Crown, as the prosecution is known in British courts. Cook, presumably not thrilled by the efforts to oust him, stayed on the case. On an unseasonably warm September afternoon, Farr arrived at Canary Wharf to meet one more time with the regulator that, until recently, had been called the FSA. While the agency occupied the same skyscraper with the same ferocious owl sculpture guarding the lobby, it had been rechristened the Financial Conduct Authority, part of a government effort to wipe away, once and for all, the old agency's stained reputation. Farr's former employer had undergone changes too. The LIBOR investigation had put R.P. Martin's future in peril. It was sold to its larger rival, BGC. Kaplan was removed from power. The FCA fined the former CEO £225,000 and banned him from ever again holding a senior financial job in the United Kingdom, accusing him of presiding over a corrupt, lawless culture. Farr, meanwhile, had sold all but one of his motorcycles, including his two beloved Ducatis. He got a temporary job chopping down trees and selling them at a local market. His life was in turmoil, but at least he had managed to maintain a sense of humor. He joked that his new open-air job was a good use of his market skills. To handle some of his legal communications, he registered an email address with the username Terry's in a Pickle. Two years earlier, when the FSA last interviewed Farr, he had said he rarely spent time or money entertaining Hayes. But in their subsequent digging, the investigators had found heaps of receipts Farr had submitted for whining and dining his prized client. Why hadn't Farr mentioned these years ago? Well, technically, it was true that he didn't go out much with Hayes. Instead, the trader would send Farr receipts from his nights out in Tokyo or London, and the broker would submit those through R.P. Martin's expense accounting system and then reimburse Hayes, transferring money directly into his bank account. We'd give him money back like that, Farr explained. And that was common practice for you to do that? Patrick Meany asked stunned by the firm's lackadaisical attitude to what looked like borderline bribery. Yes, Farr said. Meany showed him two receipts from a Four Seasons resort, from Hayes and Ty's trip to Thailand in May 2009. Then Meany played a recording of a phone call in which Hayes agreed to take the other side of one of Danziger's switch trades. Was this a quid pro quo? Meany asked. What do you mean, pro quo? that he was giving you something in return. So in return for you paying for his hotel accommodation in Thailand, he's agreeing to do a switch trade for you to give you brokerage? I can't remember actually him saying that, but, I mean, it writes like that there, Farr answered. Through it all, Hayes foraged for different ways to scratch his trader's itch. A friend who worked at an online gambling company had alerted him to a loophole in the fine print of a rival, CaesarsBingo.com. Caesars, like other gambling websites, offered customers an automatic bonus when they deposited money in their accounts. If you deposited $200, you got a $400 bonus. A total of $600 would be in your account. For every dollar you gambled, the odds were that you'd get about 60 cents back. Normally, those would seem like losing odds. But if you gambled the entire $600 at once, you could expect to recoup at least $360, a quick $160 profit above the $200 you'd deposited. If that sounded too good to be true, it usually was. Most gambling sites required that customers place a minimum number of bets, at least a few rounds, with their bonus cash. Through sheer probability, that requirement would ensure that the bonus cash and much of the principal got whittled down. But Caesars had forgotten to require customers to place a minimum number of bets. So Hayes opened accounts, 
put money in, received the bonus cash, gambled the whole pot, then withdrew whatever was left, always more than his initial deposit. He scouted the terms of other gambling sites and found a few with similar errors and got to work exploiting those too. He gleefully spread the word among friends and family. Joshua, meanwhile, had become obsessed with the Disney Pixar film Cars. Searching online, Hayes discovered a vigorous market to buy and sell the toy cars associated with the movie. Hayes calculated that he could buy a bunch of the cars in bulk for a price that worked out to less than $1 per car. That bundle would generally include one or two especially sought-after toys that could sometimes fetch more than $20 apiece from avid collectors. He could resell the pricey cars and make all his money back while keeping all the leftovers. But he overcame his impulse to try to exploit the inefficient market, reminding himself that he had more important, if less enjoyable, things to worry about. Ty had concluded that Carter Stevenson was botching courtroom arguments and feared that he wanted to go to trial mainly to burnish his own reputation. She ultimately convinced her husband to ditch the famous lawyer. His replacement was a slight, mild-mannered barrister named Neil Hawes, who had a background in fraud and finance cases. He lacked Carter Stevenson's bombast, but possessed a quiet, reassuring confidence. Under Ty's tutelage, Hayes had made progress at acting more normal. It was hard work. Whenever Hayes interacted with other people, including his wife, he had to adhere to rules that he and Ty had formulated beforehand. Among them, he needed to ask her each evening how her day had been. Hayes generally had managed to comply, but it never became automatic. Now, under pressure, he was relapsing. He started pelting acquaintances and strangers alike with information about LIBOR and why the case against him was a waste of taxpayer money. At dinner parties, he grew agitated as he talked about the injustice of his plight. Ty's efforts to redirect conversations rarely worked. They eventually stopped going out. Some friends no longer returned their phone calls. Ty found it torturous to think about her husband's predicament without a drink in her hand. The recycling bin in their driveway overflowed with wine and beer bottles. Inside, the kitchen counter was jammed with full wine bottles a reflection not only of Ty's prodigious drinking, but also of Hayes's penchant for buying in bulk. She tried to stage-manage her husband's approaching moment in the spotlight. In the car one morning, the couple discussed how to deal with the fact that, despite all their tribulations, they remained wealthy, especially compared to the jurors, drawn from London's mostly working-class Suffolk area, who would be hearing Hayes's case. He kept insisting that he had sacrificed greater riches out of loyalty to UBS. Ty explained over and over that a jury would not care. He had still earned millions. Nothing was easy. She instructed him to buy a court-appropriate wardrobe. He bought second-hand Armani and Hugo Boss trousers and dress shirts and sweaters on eBay. She persuaded him to get a professional haircut rather than leaving the task to his mother in exchange for doing a week of his chores around the house. Ty prepped him on how to act during the trial, counseling against his tendency to roll his eyes, and sent him to a personal coach to train him to control his temper, speak slowly, and make eye contact. At a pre-trial hearing in April, Cook ruled that the defense team wouldn't get access to certain additional documents it was seeking. Hayes jumped out of his chair and angrily pointed his finger at the judge. His lawyers struggled to calm him down. Afterward, he went out for fried chicken and a drink with his high school friend, David Brown, the same guy who had watched Hayes studying pub slot machines decades earlier. The bar they went to had a two-for-one deal on cocktails. Unable to resist a bargain, Hayes angrily downed one after another. By the time he got home late that night, he was drunkenly ranting about Cook. He couldn't sleep, so he popped a sleeping pill. It didn't work, 
He lay awake, slowly sobering up, miserable. Brant Davies had converted his success in the Vikings series to other acting work. His latest job was playing a fighter in the seventh Star Wars movie, The Force Awakens. It was being filmed at Pinewood Studios, which occupied a sprawling lot in the middle of a huge park west of London. Between scenes, Davies wandered around in his elaborate costume. Sometimes he called his lawyers and had to be reminded to remove his helmet so they could hear what he was saying. Davies was earning more as an actor than he had as a broker. He was also having more fun. His lawyers took to joking about whether he'd be allowed to wear chainmail into court. After being fired in the summer of 2013, Danny Wilkinson also had found an entertaining diversion, rekindling his career as a DJ. Under the stage name Emperor Constantine, he was part of an electronic group called Helsinki Five. They scored gigs at trendy clubs and a summer music festival, got a weekly late-night slot on a community radio station, and started producing amateur music videos. Costumed in white lab coats, flimsy 3D glasses, and bulky headphones, Wilkinson and his bandmates bounced around the stage, waving their arms and dancing, while the audience throbbed along with the music. For some, times were good. Not for Hayes. One afternoon, a respected London psychologist, Alison Beck, interviewed Hayes at his lawyer's offices. Part of the defense strategy was to argue that Hayes's odd personality helped explain his professional behavior. In the interview, Hayes was his normal, manic self, plowing through minutiae about his old job and the legal case before Beck even had a chance to introduce herself. Listening to Hayes' jabbering, Beck quickly concluded that he viewed the world in a very particular and peculiar manner. Human interactions were reduced to digits, with no room for nuance or subtlety. If Hayes trusted someone, for example, he gave that person unconditional, unquestioning loyalty, even if there were obvious reasons to be wary. At one point, Beck asked why he didn't want to testify against his former colleagues. They're my friends, Hayes responded. Which of them have come out to support you, she asked. Deep down, Hayes knew she was right. And yet... Beck's diagnosis confirmed what many had informally surmised over the years. Hayes had a relatively mild form of Asperger's syndrome. She wrote, Mr. Hayes does not perceive the world as people without Asperger's syndrome do. It is consistent with a diagnosis of A.S. that if manipulation of LIBOR existed both before and after Mr. Hayes's employment in the market, then he is likely to have simply regarded it as acceptable practice. People without A.S. might recognize the moral gray area of this line of work and might appreciate that excelling in this area would make them vulnerable. In order to function, he appears to have needed to believe that his bosses are right because they set the rules. This is a feature of A.S. It is also likely to have made him vulnerable to exploitation. When Hayes heard the diagnosis, he worried that a jury would dismiss it as contrived to help his case. Not an unreasonable concern. But a psychiatrist hired by the defense and a psychologist hired by the prosecution arrived at similar diagnoses. Footnote. It fit into a pattern for the Hayes clan. Family members believed that Sandy's father, Peter Hunt, a pioneer in the nascent British computing industry in the 1960s, also had autism. End footnote. Ty burst into tears when told about the diagnosis. She had a psychology degree and felt awful that she hadn't identified the condition earlier. The signs had been there all along. It wasn't just his Rain Man and Kid Asperger nicknames. Before showing up at a party, she always had to remind Hayes not to ask people inappropriate things, like how much they earned, or to comment on their weight. His obsession with routine was another. His lucky trousers, socks, pandas, turnstile. These were more than superstitions. 
They were absolute convictions. Emotionally spent, Hayes, Ty, and Joshua spent the long Easter weekend at a nearby Four Seasons, the same hotel where they'd been married. At dinner on Sunday nights in the hotel's ballroom, they were escorted to a table near the stage. Ty pointed out that they were sitting only a few feet away from where they had exchanged their wedding vows more than four years ago. How their lives had changed since then, for better and for worse. It was a romantic moment. Hayes looked up from the menu. He announced that he had made a discovery. The unit cost of steak, as measured by grams of meat, was slightly cheaper if they ordered individual portions instead of a two-person serving. Ty gaped at him in disbelief. Ty felt that the whole world had turned against her and her family. One Saturday night in April, they attended a friend's wedding in London. Hayes stood around the outskirts of the party, wondering which of the guests realized that he was an accused criminal. Toward the end, Ty bumped into an ex-boyfriend who mentioned Hayes and his apparent guilt. Ty leapt to her husband's defense. The disagreement quickly escalated into a loud, drunken fight. Ty was in a fury. The pair had to be separated forcibly. As pre-trial rulings consistently went against the defense, the trained lawyer in Ty was coming to terms with the increasing odds that her husband would be convicted. Maybe, she thought to herself, Hayes shouldn't have gone to such lengths to avoid extradition to the United States in the first place. Fulcrum's advice to cooperate fully and admit guilt wasn't looking quite so wise. She started considering what she would do if her husband was locked up. Feeling betrayed by her country, she scoped out living arrangements and a nursery in Tokyo, where she still had friends. She toyed with a job prospect in Abu Dhabi. She worried that she would skid into a dark, angry depression if she remained in England. Then she reconsidered. She couldn't abandon Hayes. Increasingly, she was paranoid. One day, she was standing outside her office having a cigarette, a bad habit she had recently resumed in order to deal with the stress. A silver Mercedes stopped at a traffic light. A man in the back seat seemed to be pointing his long-lensed camera right at her. Ty couldn't quite put her finger on why someone would be photographing her, but she was convinced it was part of a conspiracy. Maybe the SFO was trying to intimidate her. Hayes chain-smoked, his hair grayed. He had vivid, bizarre dreams. In one, he was running a KFC franchise and showed up to cook himself some fried chicken. At first, he couldn't get the fryers to work. Then customers noticed the restaurant was open and they streamed in. Hayes realized there wasn't any chicken anywhere. There was only beef stroganoff. He awoke in a panic. In a different nightmare, he flunked professional tests that his rivals passed. Another time, he dreamed that he returned to work and that everything was back to normal. Nobody cared about LIBOR. This time, he woke to the crushing realization that it was only a dream. The couple strategized about what they would tell Joshua if Hayes was convicted. They decided on a white lie. Daddy was away at work for the next few years, like a soldier on an overseas assignment. Ty envisioned a large photo of Hayes hanging in their home. Each night, she and Joshua would wish the portrait good night. UBS had fired Pete the Greek before he could land a job at a competitor, and things had gone downhill for him from there. As the FCA trawled through internal chats and emails from UBS and other banks, the agency encountered the plentiful instances in which he schemed with his colleagues to get LIBOR adjusted for the benefit of his trading positions. The regulator banned him from performing any influential role in the British financial industry because he was dishonest and lacked integrity. Pete the Greek's lawyers appealed the ruling. The FCA had an odd system for handling appeals of this nature. An internal panel, 
called the Regulatory Decisions Committee, was empowered to overturn verdicts of the agency's enforcement division if it found that there was compelling evidence that hadn't been properly taken into account. In early April, the committee vacated the FCA's punishment. The crux of the ruling, which was secret due to the confidential nature of the disciplinary process, was that Mr. Kutsoyanis did not behave dishonestly or without integrity in making requests for submissions within what he understood to be an acceptable range. The FCA recognized the potential import of the ruling on Hayes' defense. A week before the trial was to begin, the agency convened a meeting to decide whether to disclose the ruling to his lawyers. The sensitivity here is the criminal proceedings and the potential bleed across to other cases, an FCA official told attendees. They decided to withhold judgment for now on whether the Hayes team needed to know. Preparations for the trial went down to the wire. Hayes continued to hunt for witnesses to testify on his behalf. He wondered if Roger Darren might be willing to appear. Sure, the men hated each other, but we now have mutual self-interest, he explained to an acquaintance. It's like Superman and Lex Luthor teaming up. Sometimes your enemy's enemy is your friend. His lawyers dismissed the idea. Hayes's team, however, remained convinced that the SFO was engaged in a cover-up by refusing to hand over millions of internal UBS documents that had been dredged up in the Swiss bank's internal investigation. In fact, the SFO had never actually seen the documents because UBS and its lawyers successfully argued they were subject to Switzerland's bank secrecy laws. In court, lawyers debated whether the defense could use Hayes' Asperger's diagnosis to explain why Hayes didn't realize that what he was doing was wrong. The prosecution argued it was irrelevant. Cook ruled for the prosecution. That wasn't the only thing upsetting Hayes. He also was frustrated that his lawyers weren't interested in using the spreadsheets he had constructed that showed that his trading partners were almost entirely other banks and that his brokers didn't always adhere to his requests. His lawyers doubted the spreadsheets would help convince a jury of his innocence. In court one day, Hayes slipped a memory stick with the spreadsheets to one of Wilkinson's lawyers. Someone might as well put all his hard work to use. After all these years, Hayes still hadn't figured out who his friends were.